Dr. Doug Moo is one of the titanic names in evangelical biblical studies. I used his textbook, written with D.A. Carson, in my own New Testament introduction course when I began seminary a full 20 years ago. I have repeatedly turned to his Romans commentary in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, including choosing it as a textbook when I taught Romans on the MDiv level. I have benefited immensely from comments he's made on Bible translation. As the head of the Committee for Bible Translation, who are responsible for the widely used New International Version, I think I have all or nearly all his commentaries in Logos Bible Software. He's someone like D.A. Carson, actually, who just rises to the top as a trusted guide to scripture. He has a new book out that fits the theme of this third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast very well. It's A Theology of Paul and His Letters, part of Zondervan's Biblical Theology of the New Testament series. Listen in as Dr. Moo and I discuss his buzz-making, but also very substantive and substantial new work. It's my distinct honor to have Dr. Doug Moo on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. He is the author, most recently, of A Theology of Paul and His Letters, subtitled The Gift of the New Realm in Christ. And I don't bother anymore um, reading out all of the accomplishments of the people that I get to interview. That's too long. I let them do that work. Let them praise themselves with their own lips by telling me <laughs> what their accomplishments are. I just like to know, Dr. Moo, how do you serve the body of Christ? Uh, sure. Uh, let me try to answer that as briefly as I can. Um, back when I went down this road of becoming an academic, feeling that that was where the Lord had me going, my wife graciously spent some time to to do a wooden engraving for me, which I have hanging in my office. It's a quote from Johann Albrecht Bengel, that, uh, where he, he says, apply yourself wholly to the text, apply the text wholly to yourself. Um, and I've taken that as my motto as I've tried to serve the Lord now for over 45 years. Uh, I love to dig into the text and figure out what's going on uh, and talk about it and explain it. Uh, but obviously that text has a purpose for each one of us, and uh, I've been uh, hopeful and praying for all my life that as I study the text, it has the impact it's supposed to have on me as well. Uh, back in my days uh, doing an MDiv at Trinity you know, Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, I kind of had to make the choice what kind of ministry route was I going to go and became clear I'd be a terrible pastor because uh, I'll sit in my office and over-prepare all my sermons and avoid being with people. Uh, so I went the academic route, did a PhD at St. Andrews, uh, was fortunate enough to get hired at Trinity, my alma mater, mater, where I taught for about 23 years before moving to Wheaton, where I've been teaching in the graduate school now since 2000. Uh, I teach in the master's program, and I supervise PhD students as well. Early in my academic work, uh, my focus was mainly on the Gospels. My dissertation was in that area, and I taught in that area for many years. Gradually moved over to Paul, just found Paul very interesting and challenging. Uh, so most of my academic work has been focused on uh, Paul and the letters, written some commentaries here and there on some of the letters, and then finally brought to fruition this Pauline theology that's been something I've been 
on and off now for about 15 or 20 years. Uh, I'm very wow. happy to have finally finished. Yeah, and it's quite an accomplishment. And, you know, I'm an editor and a writer, and I was leafing through this, and I'm just going to have to admit, you know, I got this last week. Um, I wasn't able to read everything, but I diligently uh, skimmed and dug in at all the places that I could. And everywhere I looked, I saw substance. There was no fluff. And I looked at those footnotes, and I saw the amount of work that you had put into preparing this over years and years. And what can I say except thank you? The portions that I have read were genuinely helpful to me, bringing up some issues and questions, raising, uh, answering some questions that had come up even very recently. We'll talk about some of those. And this is in the Biblical Theology of the New Testament series put out by Zondervan Academic. Um, your uh, This series uh, on biblical theology fits well with the Bible Study Magazine podcast season three that we're in now because the theme for the podcast for this season is biblical theology. And I've been asking everybody that comes onto the podcast to just define for me, what is biblical theology? I think that's, that's a tough question to answer quickly. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion about just how biblical theology should be positioned vis-a-vis -vis exegesis on the one hand and systematic theology on the other. The analogy that's often used is the analogy of a bridge, which I think can be helpful enough. Uh, the, 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 the biblical theology helps us move from the details of exegesis in the historical context uh, into uh, the formulations of theology in the broader sense, systematic theology for the church. Um, uh, biblical theology uh, seeks then to do a close reading of the text, a deep reading of the text, trying to bring out its uh, key theological elements to relate them together across the canon, very important, uh, and at the same time to try to use categories that are only one step removed from Scripture itself. So whereas in systematic theology we have topics like soteriology, ecclesiology, uh, questions that are sometimes drawn from philosophy to some degree uh, that we're trying to answer, uh, biblical theology tries to uh, identify the thoughts of the New Testament and Old Testament authors uh, as much as possible and as close as possible in their own terminology, or at least in the categories that they're obviously working within. That's very helpful, and your your answer was among the briefest that I've gotten. Uh, poor Jim <laughs> Hamilton, I love him, and we had a fantastic time talking, actually, in the very studios in which I believe you have shot some mobile ed content for us here in Bellingham, Washington. And uh, I had to say to him after he gave this definition, I was like, that was a really expansive definition. <laughs> it makes me feel that sometimes something like biblical theology is caught as much as taught. Um, and of course, the Bible doesn't give us a definition of biblical theology in the back, so like that's okay. We can you know define it in a way that's useful that that brings out Bible teaching, and that you definitely do. You, your latest book here that we're talking about is what literary theorists and historians of the Codex call a corker, uh, a theology of Paul and his letters, a big book. Uh, I'm an evangelical Christian. I stake my life on the Word of God, as you do. I believe there is such a thing as a Pauline theology that can be derived from his letters. 
But I want to start here with my first big question, aiming at the limits of biblical theology. When I was writing my own dissertation on Paul's view of the affections, my fellow PhD student Andy Nacelli, whom I believe you know, commented to me that I had to be careful not to ask these often occasional letters of Paul, you know, letters, as you know, written on specific occasions to specific congregations, to yield a full theology of my topic. So there's a Pauline theology of grace. I think we can all agree, but presumably there isn't a Pauline theology of farming. So when, in your delineation of Paul's theology, did you stop yourself from going down a path that, you know, you had to decide was asking Paul's letters to tell us more than they were divinely inspired to tell us? Yeah, that's a, a big issue in, uh, I think, the church today. Uh, some have called it, how do we go beyond the Bible biblically? Uh, granted, the fact, as you say, there are a lot of topics that we are very vitally interested in these days uh, that are not really covered as such in Scripture. Uh, I would argue that that's especially where we need the help of systematic theology, uh, which takes the witness of Scripture uh, produced to some degree through biblical theology uh, and tries to deploy its teaching to respond to some of the questions of our day. I'm not sure that I want to say that biblical theology does not do that. In other words, some would say biblical theology should just be this historical discipline only. Our purpose in biblical theology is to stay in the past tense. Here's what Paul said. Here's what Paul taught. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I think that any theology, uh, however we describe it, whatever adjective we put in front of it, is theology designed to confront us, uh, to teach us, to exhort us, to challenge us. Um, so when we ask certain questions of Scripture, some are going to be uh, teased out maybe at the surface. What does Paul say about grace, the illustration you used? Uh, but one can look in a concordance, I suspect, under the word affection and not find very much. Right. Uh, and uh, how do you tease that out? Uh, that takes, uh, first of all, a recognition of the occasional nature of the letters of Paul. In other words, before we start drawing conclusions from Galatians or Philippians, uh, we have to ground it in the situation Paul was actually addressing, some of the problems that were arising, uh, who his audience might have been, some of the categories of thinking and issues of his day. We have to put it in that context first. So that's why the first part of my book, works through the letters of Paul, each of them uh, trying to set them in their context and understand a little bit of their teaching in that way. Uh, so when we're compiling a theology of Paul or a theology of Jesus or John or Old Testament, Moses, a prophet, whatever, uh, the first step to do our job well is to, is to be aware of that situation. Thirteen letters of Paul, all written in different times, different people, and different places, different issues. Uh, so when we are taking a single subject and working our way through all of them, uh, we have to be conscious again of the occasional nature of each of the letters. Uh, and having allowed for that then to start to build up a picture, not just of what Romans or Philippians says, but a picture of what Paul thought about something. And what Paul thought is often going to be uh, obviously, uh, a conclusion drawn from many different places of the letters as we try sympathetically to relate them to each other and draw conclusions. Yeah, in my own dissertation, I 
took the jumping off point of Paul's repeated command to imitate me, of course, imitate me as I follow Christ. And several times he'll also praise certain uh, churches or individuals for doing that very thing. And I reasoned that there therefore must be uh, elements of Paul's affections, his loves, if that's the very central Christian virtue mm -hmm. that I can uh, discern from his letters. And one thing that you did in your book, and I, I saw repeatedly, you know, I, I love languages and I love the biblical languages. And unfortunately, I do hear them get misused a little too often in preaching. I'm kind of like, you know, cringing a little bit here and there. Because frequently what people do is they'll make a one-to-one -one correspondence between every time a given word like agape occurs and this full-orbed concept of Christian love that they assume occurs every time the word does. And you were very careful in your discussions of various uh, concepts in Paul's theology, like grace, um, uh, justification, to distinguish word and concept to show places where Paul talks about the concept of love, let's say, without necessarily using the word, um, or kind of vice versa, places where the word might show up, but, you know, he isn't actually discussing that concept. Your your Bible interpretation was very careful. I felt you took uh, Andy DeSelli's advice that I'm sure you knew before both Andy and I were born uh, to not abuse the occasional letters to make them tell us too much. Now, I I, I'm not a prophet. Um, D.A. Carson always says, uh, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit organization. But I work for a for-profit business, so I can't say that. Um, I do think, however, that this there are some key words in this subtitle, the gift of the new realm in Christ, that I think are going to be talked about for years to come. And I really, especially this word realm. Um, uh, but I want to ask you to talk about that subtitle, especially that word realm, but any other uh, insight you can give us into why, after all these years of work, you boiled down that subtitle to these words, the gift of the new realm in Christ. Talk us through that subtitle, please, would you? Sure. Uh, I must say at the outset, I'm not not sure whether to be happy that people uh, are going to be talking about this or not. Uh, we will see whether that comes true or not. Um, yeah, I, I'll try to, to uh, sort of rehearse where I uh, came up with some of this, and I can, I can, I can pretty well definitely locate it uh, in the context of a Sunday school class in around 2002 or 2003. Uh, I don't remember who the teacher was, and I was probably not being very nice to the teacher by kind of going off of some of my own thinking while he was teaching. But I was sitting there in the class, and it came to me, and I was thinking about how to structure my New Testament theology class at Wheaton. And um, I felt that I wanted to do a kind of an overview, a synthetic biblical theology, so I wasn't just doing author by author. Uh, but trying to bring authors together. And uh, suddenly this idea of the, of the realm came to me. Um, as, as you will know, as many of the listeners here will know, it's quite typical in New Testament studies and New Testament theology to look at this kind of fundamental distinction between old age and new age as a, a kind of a building block, a framework of what's going on in New Testament teaching. Uh, and I'm very much indebted here to Herman Ritterboss's Pauline theology back in the middle 70s, who uh, really took these ideas and, and ran with them. Uh, the problem I ran into with the age language, however, was it's obviously very temporally oriented, old, 
new time scale. Uh, whereas uh, for Paul, obviously, while the new uh, the, the new has dawned, it is here, the old is not gone. So it's not as if we have simply a temporal displacement of the one with the other. And I begin thinking about passages like the end of Romans 5, where Paul talks about how grace is reigning through righteousness to bring eternal life to us in Christ. And that language of reigning or ruling got me thinking about this idea of thinking of two realms, uh, two contrasting realms, kind of as a fundamental building blocks of the way Paul is thinking about what Christ has done and how he uh, affects us, who he is for us. Um, I later found that Gerhardus of Voss, V-O-S, the great Reformed theologian, early 1900s, had done something very similar with that kind of spatial imagery. So I was encouraged to find that there was someone else working in that category as well. Any I'm, very, I'm very much aware that any category we choose is going to be to some degree potentially disfiguring to Paul's thought. You know, we're, we're, we're choosing a framework and we're to some degree imposing it in places at least. Uh, I'm very, very much aware of that, and I would want to, to, to make very clear that I don't think the, the realm contrast answers all our questions. Uh, there are places in Paul that uh, are going to escape being categorized neatly within this kind of two-realm framework that I've developed for, for the book. A gift, gift of the new realm, you asked about the subtitle as a whole, the gift of the new realm, I think. Uh, Paul's teaching on grace, something John Barclay has emphasized again for us in his great monograph uh, over the last few years. Uh, grace, God's giving, is so fundamental to Paul. Uh, I felt that was important to have there. And then finally, the in Christ. Uh, when push comes to shove, as I argue in the book, that's where I'm going to identify as the center of Paul's theology. It's a phrase he uses all over the place with respect to just about every dimension of Christian uh, existence, uh, and of salvation history as well. Uh, so that's why the in Christ is there. Uh, I just felt any theology of Paul uh, needed to kind of honor that phrase. Yeah, I, I read at least portions of your discussion of that phrase in Christ, and something clicked in my mind. I hope I'm accurately understanding you, not taking you off in a direction you didn't intend to go. But I have read Paul, of course, my entire life. I grew up in the church. And I have come across that phrase at times when I thought, you know, I don't really know what this means here. How how does that prepositional phrase help me? How does it fit into the overall sentence? It was almost like, and when I read you just listing off all the places where Paul said, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, uh, it just kind of gave me a little bit of permission to back off and say, maybe there isn't something as specific as I was looking for. He's just always thinking about this. And he's kind of tossing that phrase in uh, just out of the abundance of the heart and the mouth speaks, as it were. Uh, he views <laughs> yeah. everything in Christ. I, I hope I didn't take you in a direction you didn't intend to go. No, I think there's some truth to that. I don't think we can kind of narrow, narrowly define what Paul is talking about. For him, Christ is so all-encompassing, so overwhelming, that it's almost like he is the atmosphere we breathe. Uh, it's not my language. I think that um, Dysmon perhaps was the one who came up with that language many years ago. And I'm not, I don't want to take it as far as he did, the way the way he understood it. But that's kind of the idea that Christ is so all-encompassing 
that uh, whatever happens in salvation history and however it affects us as individual believers, it's in Christ, yeah. I'd like to turn back now to this concept of biblical theology, which is the theme for this third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. The great theologian Dashiell Robert Parr, who is the 10-year-old son of Bob Parr in the Pixar movie The Incredibles, uh, once said that if everybody's special, then no one is. So I'm going to ask you a hard question, Dr. Moo. Biblical theology has a lot of cachet right now, and for a lot of great reasons. But if everything starts to be biblical theology, then nothing is. So what makes your Pauline theology a biblical theology, as you say on here of Paul's writings? Well, yeah, again, it, it gets back to this issue of what we mean by, by biblical theology and how we define it. Uh, certainly, I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket by any means. In other words, I greatly respect the work that my systematic theological colleagues do. And I fully understand that what I'm doing is not systematic theology and that the, that next step, as it were, in which we bring philosophy to bear, in which we uh, root what we're doing in the history of theology and seek to answer the questions that people are asking today, that, that vital work that's, that systematicians do is not necessarily what I'm doing. Now, I think there's overlap. Uh, and again, the way I think about it uh, is, again, we're building this bridge, and that bridge has to have secure moorings and exegesis on the one hand, but also secure moorings on the systematic theology side as well. So at least in my Pauline theology, I think what I'm trying to do is package Paul's thought in a way that makes it deliverable to the systematic theologian, so that uh, I'm giving them some good uh, material to work with. It's not just so rooted on the exegesis side uh, that they have to do all the work afresh in order to come up with anything that's going to be usable for them. Uh, so yeah, biblical theology can just be phrases we throw around and call anything we want biblical theology. I, I, I want to, I think, resist that. And at least in my book on Paul, I'm sticking pretty close again to the categories he is using, to the issues he is talking about. Um, I, I try to get into some contemporary issues, of course, inevitably, because Paul relates to us in various ways. So, of course, those come up uh, again and again. Uh, in many ways, uh, the issues Paul addresses aren't that different from the ones that we are addressing in, 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 in our day. I, I'm a decided descriptive linguist, and you, you'll understand, I'm sure you've had this experience, that sometimes when descriptive linguists talk, other people are alarmed, like, you know, don't you need to prescribe the, the meaning of a given word? And, and they think then meaning is totally up for grabs. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Language doesn't work that way. And these concepts like biblical theology and systematic theology don't work that way. They are, though, the, the, the meaning is determined by usage. And so I'm, I'm going to try to observe how biblical theology, that phrase, gets used. And you see if you would agree or clarify or disagree anywhere. I see people on the Old Testament side doing the very thing that you're talking about 
and we'll talk about that in a second, but I see them also with biblical theology probably focusing more on what might also be called redemptive history, you know, the one story of scripture, the meta-narrative that scripture teaches. That is a natural thing for Old Testament theologians to do because the structure of the Old Testament is so overwhelmingly narratival uh, as compared to the New Testament, which of course has narrative, and you hang a lot of your uh, discussion on the narratives of Acts that describe, you know, where Paul was when he, uh, you know, we project wrote given books. But when it comes to New Testament theologians such as yourself, when I see biblical theology, I do more often see them um, focusing on that one step above the, the text, one step of synthesis beyond just reading the text on this page, letting the categories of the text of Paul, who talks a ton about grace, and therefore you do, who talks a ton about justification, and therefore you do, letting him call the shots. And I'm not bothered that sometimes biblical theology is more redemptive historical and more focused on the narrative and the progressive revelation of scripture, and sometimes it's more focused on what you've described here uh, in your book. I'm totally fine with people using the phrase in both major ways. Um, would you see it that way? Would you add any more ways you see the term used? Correct anything I've said? Yeah, I think at least I'd want to qualify what you've just said. Um, on the one hand, uh, to recognize that many people doing biblical theology from the New Testament side are heavily invested into narrative approaches these days. Uh, N.T. Wright is, of course, the prominent example here, whose uh, biblical theology rests very heavily on a certain reading of the history of Israel, the narrative of Israel, and how that narrative now is flowing into Jesus, the Gospels, and Paul, and so on. Uh, so certainly some New Testament biblical th theologians are pretty heavily invested in, in narrative. Um, I also agree that narrative is fundamental to New Testament theology, but, but my, my take on Paul, at least, is that he's not so much telling narratives. Uh, he's, not, he's not telling stories, as it were. He is uh, taking the story that he has uh, inherited from Jesus, from his Jewish background, now modified by the reality of Christ. Uh, he's taking that story and commenting on it and using it as the context in which he is drawing out various points that he wants to make to the churches along the way. Uh, so that's how I find narrative to be significant in Paul. And so I would, I would disagree that my theology is not redemptive historical. I think it is in that that's kind of the framework that I'm working in throughout, whether I'm doing exegesis or drawing conclusions from the exegesis. Um, so again, I, I, think, I think I am doing redemptive history there uh, and focusing on the way Paul is drawing out the significance of that history for the issues he addresses. Excellent. Yeah. Of course, I would not see the redemptive historical and the, boy, what would you call it, the thematic, you know, progressive revelation side as opposite, but as complementary. And absolutely, sure. you're assuming the same redemptive historical story of Scripture. That so excited me when I first took Old Testament theology years ago and started to see, wow, the Bible really is telling one story. I was just so confused yeah. by all the trees that I didn't see the forest. <laughs> I've had occasion to yeah. talk about that a lot here on the podcast. Yeah. You mentioned N.T. Wright. 
Um, I read your sections on the new perspective on Paul. Of course, when people have to skim and just dip in here and there, they're going to do what I did. They're going to dip into the more controversial stuff. And that is a subject about which I've been reading off and on for, I just, I just realized, half my lifetime. And I wanted to reflect a little bit on Bible interpretation and get some of your wisdom here because this entire time, and I'm just going to openly admit this uh, before an August New Testament scholar, <laughs> I have felt like I could just never step onto the ground of the new perspective. I, it was like physically impossible. I, I couldn't, even for the sake of argument, make myself see things from that new perspective. I can do that with secularism. I can perform the thought experiment of seeing the world through secular eyes, you know, take off my Christian glasses for a minute and put on theirs. I can even pretend to be a Dallas Cowboys fan, but I feel that I either must be intellectually deficient or too much under the thumb of my own particular Protestant tradition, which is essentially your own. I just can't inhabit the new perspective. I, I can see value in it like you did, but I can't see through it like lenses. And I, I know they have answers for this, but my mind just always zooms right to Romans 10.3, which in the NIV reads, since the Jews did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. All that boils down to this question. When do you push yourself to really understand an interpretive perspective on scripture or a portion of scripture that you disagree with? And when do you let yourself dismiss it without deep engagement? Yeah, that's a good uh, question. And there's so much written on Paul. I mean, you mentioned my footnotes a moment ago. Uh, as I worked on Paul over those years, for every book I read, two more were published on Paul. Uh, it seemed like a never-ending stream. Uh, and let's face it, uh, to be honest, uh, some of those uh, books, some of the articles written about Paul, I find so implausible at the outset uh, that I don't spend much time on them. Now, that's, maybe that's a failing of mine. Um, but I just, I just can't you know, imagine, uh, no matter how hard I work, uh, to figure out how a particular perspective is going to do justice to Paul. But there are a lot of really good people out there working on Paul with different views than mine. And in order to do justice to those views, uh, I have to read into them. I have to inhabit their own view. I have to try to see things as they are seeing them so I can legitimately uh, assess what they're doing and whether it, it, it works with Paul or not. So take Romans 10.3, for instance. Uh, Jimmy Dunn and Tom Wright would both say, well, their own righteousness there doesn't mean one's own individual righteousness. It's a way of referring to Israel's own righteousness. And that the new perspective, of course, identifies this as the fundamental problem Paul is dealing with. Uh, the Jews trying to confine uh, salvation to themselves, uh, arguing that Torah is essential, uh, keeping a boundary around them and keeping the Gentiles out. Uh, so the typical uh, early Jewish view that, yeah, righteousness is something God has given the people of Israel, us, and it's not for the Jews. Uh, so I can understand how they understand how they interpret Romans 10.3 in that context. And again, when I try to inhabit their view, I, I have to be honest and say, yeah, there, there's a lot in Paul that rings true with what they're saying, and that arguably the Reformation tradition is underplayed that aspect of Paul's thought, the Gentile inclusion aspect. Now, now finally, I don't go where the new perspective goes. Uh, I have reservations about some other things they do and how totally totalizing they want to make it. That's, that's one of my, my problems that I have with them. Uh, as I talk about the new 
perspective, I feel I must also add the problem of definition here. Are we talking about Jimmy Dunn's new perspective or Tom Wright's new perspective? In his recent books, Wright has said, I don't even want to use the phrase new perspective anymore. Uh, so we have to be cautious about what we mean. And I think sometimes that's the problem of definition we have. So many people out there are writing what they claim to be a new perspective uh, uh, angle, and there's so there's so many people doing it, and it just gets confusing because there's so much being throw, thrown into that pot, as it were. You said earlier that you entered academic work in part because pastoral work probably didn't quite fit your gifting and personality. You said, I think, you know, you That's weren't quite personable yes. enough. But, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, and I've listened to you before, and I'm as I'm reading you again, um, I might dispute that just a little bit because I see you loving your neighbor when you very carefully and ironically, without getting upset, try to inhabit their perspective, step into their shoes, and see what that yields. And I've, I've always found it much more persuasive to read someone who's able to give credit to the other side, to give an inch, you know, when this other tradition, who is in a sense competing with your tradition, actually has something to teach you. And I was delighted to see, and, I, and I've seen this before, you know, you're not the only figure to do this, that you're saying, yeah, there are some things we need to bring on board from the new perspective. And I'm delighted to see this. I really hadn't picked up on with as much clarity as you showed it in the book. And you have a good quotation. I'm not going to be able to find it right now, but I remember reading it actually just yesterday um, where I believe it was N.T. Wright acknowledging that it's a, it's a both and, you know, the, the Reformation view, the, that tradition, that paradigm doesn't need to be overturned. It needs to be supplemented with some greater care to describe accurately the various Jewish sects and views as they actually existed rather than as we would sort of like them to exist given our introspective conscience here in the West. So um, I think that you treated your, you know, opponents in that sense, you know, people you disagree with, with repeated charity, and I, I appreciated that. I want to bring up an, another similar uh, kind of issue where I think uh, you and I, you know, you standing this tall, me standing this tall, are on the same side of a line versus some other Christians, and I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. Literally yesterday, I had coffee with an evangelical pastor who is ethnically Jewish, as my wife happens to be, actually, and he raised issues that you did deal with in your book and named some names that I just right after that read in your book, that he was more sympathetic to views in which Paul considers Torah observance a good thing and maybe even required among ethnically Jewish Christians. So he cited 1 Corinthians 7, 17 or so, in which Paul lays down this rule in all the churches, was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised, was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Uh, Paul says circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, keeping God's commandments is what counts, which is quite a remarkable statement. He says each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So this new pastor friend of mine, really knowledgeable guy, really enjoyed talking to him. I had just heard a sermon of his recently, and it was just fantastic on uh, one of the Psalms. He said that he saw circumcision here as synecdoche, you know, the, the literary device in which the part represents the whole. Circumcision is part of Torah observance, he reasoned, and therefore 
uh, Paul is saying people should remain in the situation in which God called them, namely, and I'm new enough to this conversation that I'm not totally sure how he would flesh this out, but I, I think he was saying that he sees Paul laying down a rule that Jews should keep the whole Torah, even when they come to Christ. So I found these discussions of, uh, 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 your discussions of these issues really newly fascinating because I can connect them to a person now. How do you respond to this viewpoint on 1 Corinthians 7 that I've just described? What, what does your view of Paul's old and new realms say to this? Yeah, sure. Uh, th this is an issue that's certainly become uh, pretty significant in the last 20 years or so. Sometimes it's called the Paul within Judaism movement. Uh, some call it Messianic Judaism, uh, which goes, which again covers a variety of, of views is, is the problem again. Um, I think I want to answer that first narrowly and then broadly. Narrowly in 1 Corinthians 7, I could see the kind of argument uh, that you're, you're, you're making here, that someone would say, yeah, you're supposed to stay circumcised, that that implies circumcision as part of the whole package of Torah observance, so the Jews are to remain in that situation and continue to observe the Torah even as Christians. I think that runs into some dissonance, however, in the passage itself when Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing what counts as keeping the commandments of God. Apparently, Paul is saying circumcision he doesn't view as a commandment of God. Uh, and I, I don't think he's restricting that to Gentiles in the context. So I think even in that paragraph, you have, uh, I think, an indication that Paul is looking at uh, the new realm, which now has brought in a new law, Christ's law, under which all Christians now live, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul has a deep concern for the unity of the church. Uh, and I think he's concerned that if Jews continue to observe Torah, that's going to create a boundary between Jew and Gentile. It's going to disturb what uh, one of the fundamental things Paul is after, the unity of the body of Christ. Now, having said that, Paul, I think, is also clear in saying, you know, if, if Jews who have come to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, they are Jesus followers, if they want to work out their new spiritual lives by continuing to observe the Torah, Paul says, I think that's okay. He, I don't think he has a problem with that. Romans 14 but, and 15. Yeah, Romans 14 and 15 would be a case in point. So, uh, I, you know, Paul, I, I don't think Paul wants it to be imposed. But he says, yeah, it's okay if you want to work it out that way. And I would point to 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and following. It's a debated text. They all are debated texts, aren't they? Uh, but there Paul talks about his strategy. You know, when I am evangelizing uh, the Gentiles, uh, I, I don't consider myself under the law. I don't live under the law. Uh, Paul in Romans 14 and 15 aligns himself with the strong, those who think all foods are clean. Uh, implying, again, that the Jewish food laws are no longer operative for people like Paul. So I think when you read Paul as a whole, uh, he's, he's pretty clear, again, in saying, uh, yeah, Jewish Christians can continue to observe the Torah, but in, in some ways I think he hints at, you know, I'd kind of prefer that they didn't insist on it uh, as a means of preserving the unity of the body of Christ. 
I've been really just just introduced to this as something other than a merely academic debate because of this new friend. And Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. I've always taken that to mean the people I bring across your path. That's who you have to love. So I found your work on this issue and your careful evaluation of the text to be very helpful. And Lord willing, that discussion will continue. I have a more personal question that I really hope and assume pretty well every uh, listener of the Bible Study Magazine podcast would have along with me, and I'm sure it's one you've had yourself. But I can't lose the opportunity to ask a New Testament scholar, someone who's worked on the theology of Paul, I have been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the realm ruled by Christ. Dr. Moo, why do I still sin? Yeah, that gets back to, again, where I think this this new realm imagery can help us. Um, you know, you can be transported from one country to another. You can cross a national border, let's say, uh, from Mexico to the U.S. or U.S. To, to Canada or whatever. And let's say you immigrate. Let's say you decide to, to stay in Canada once you move there. And in a sense, you're a Canadian. But your American habits probably haven't completely fallen away yet. You're, you're still going to look for Dunkin' Donuts rather than Tim Hortons, for instance. Those stubborn U.S. ways of doing things might uh, continue to affect you for a long time. Uh, so we are decisively transferred into the new realm. I think Paul's you know, very clear about that, and he rejoices in that uh, everywhere. But he recognizes that uh, while the Spirit is doing his work in us, that work is not finished yet. Uh, that work has begun, it's ongoing, and hopefully it becomes significant for all of us in conforming us to Christ over time. Uh, but not until the old realm is finally done away with, not until our bodies are raised and we are transformed and glorified, will, be, will we be free from those uh, impulses to sin that we uh, sort of uh, had back in our former life in the old realm. Now, my my next follow-up question, this is really important theology stuff. Why did you make the U.S. the old realm and Canada the new realm? I mean, could we switch it? Would that be okay? I'll have my editor go back and fix that if you don't you mind. Are, you are going to re 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 read into whatever I say, something there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> In these interviews, no one tells me what to ask and what jokes to use, so I get to say what I want and ask what I'm curious about, and my guests are usually bound by politeness to answer. So as we get closer to wrapping up here, I want to return again to the limits of biblical theology. If D.A. Carson is ever forced by publisher quotas to enlist a redheaded writer for his New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which I have bought every volume of in Logos Bible Software with my own money. And if Carson taps me, I have half a mind to do a biblical theology of Bible translation, but I am skeptical of my own idea. So I want to ask Dr. Moo, as a practitioner of biblical theology and as a well-known Bible translator, head of the Committee for Bible Translation, which is responsible for the New International Version, for which I am deeply grateful, do you think the Bible contains enough relevant material to do a biblical theology of Bible translation? Where might such a task begin, even if it can't finish? Uh, I, I think only in a very general sense. Um, I think most of the principles that go into good Bible translation are simply good linguistic principles that would apply 
to any translation from one language to another. And if I might just go off subject a little bit there. That's one of my concerns is that so many people don't understand how translation works. Um, so many of us here in the U.S. especially are monolingual. We, we know English, our own form of English. We don't work much in other languages. So we don't have kind of an instinctive feel how translation really works. So I think, I think in, in general, it's a matter simply of following good linguistic principles to translate well. Now, obviously, Scripture talks about the significance of God's Word in the lives of believers. Uh, and sometimes when the NIV is criticized for decisions we've made or, or something, I get that. I don't agree with all the decisions we, we make. But I wish people could... Uh, be present at our deliberations just to see how seriously we are taking the Word of God and how deeply we uh, are conscious of the fact that the, the English words we are choosing are going to be what millions of people read as God's Word to them. Uh, it's just an awesome, awesome responsibility that we all feel. I think the other principle I would, I think, legitimately derive from Scripture is the importance of putting God's Word in a form that is accessible to people. Uh, when you're doing any translation, you've always got to consider your audience. Uh, and as I look around the English-speaking world, people uh, have less and less ability to read English well. We are inundated with media that doesn't force us to read or to think about what we're reading very well. So if we're going to produce Bible translations that are accessible for that average person out there, uh, I think there are significant implications for the kind of English we have to use, for instance. And, and I do think there's something in Scripture that uh, supports that principle. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, I would not expect you to know this. It's totally fine that you wouldn't. But I've kind of adopted a lot of the things that you've said as a personal mission at Bible Study Magazine and on my own personal YouTube channel and in books that I have written and am writing. You can defend yourself against charges, but it looks self-motivated, right? Even when it's not, even when you're trying to serve people. But I can defend you and <laughs> good the other you. <laughs> good godly Bible translators who are out there just trying to do their best to get God's Word into people's hands. And I'm not making money off of it. And people know that I, I'm just out there for the plowboy. I know you are too. And actually, one reason I love to talk to Bible translators uh, in interviews like this is to personalize this, unfortunately, I think often depersonalized debate where people out there say, oh, HarperCollins, they're just out to make a buck off of the Bible. And, you know, uh, the copyright restrictions have made it so that, you know, they got to have their own Bible so they can, uh, you know, don't have to pay another publisher. And I work for a publisher. I think that's not necessarily illegitimate. Like we got to be good stewards of our money, but I know that's not what's motivating you. It's not what's motivating Melinda Bauma, who's the Bible publisher that I've interviewed for a Bible study magazine also to put out these, uh, these Bible translations and, and all the beautiful editions I've got sitting back on the shelf behind mm -hmm. me. So I've already said thank you for your work on this book. Um, I implied thank you for your work on the book of Romans. I've, I went ahead and bought the, the first and now the second editions of your uh, NICNT commentary on Romans, which is widely acclaimed as the, the very best. Thank you for that. But does anybody ever just say thank you? Thank you for your work on the NIV, which over and over and over again, even though I'm not the plowboy, 
I, I have the education. Frankly, I read well and I've always read well. My dad taught me. You still have brought the word to me in countless places that I wasn't quite getting it until I turned over to the NIV column in my comparative study Bible. And what could be a more precious gift than me understanding the words that God has said? So thank you for that work. And thank you for well, the time that you've you. given us here on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Sure. And l- l- if I might just say one sure. more thing. Thanks for your thanks. And we do get thanks. You know, sometimes you can focus on the critics and, and, and get preoccupied with them. We do hear that thanks. I just want to say that, you know, when I talk about the work of translation we're doing, I'm not talking exclusively about the NIV. Uh, translators of the ESV, NLT, these other great versions of the Bible, I think are doing very much the same. We are slightly different philosophies of where they want their English to uh, c- come out, perhaps. That's fine. We should be thankful for the variety of options we've got in English. When you think of other languages of the world where they might have one rather inadequate and old-fashioned translation into their language. So. Right. Yeah, no, um, as I've had occasion to say to other translators I've interviewed, like you're preaching to the choir director. This is what I've been saying. We have an embarrassment <laughs> of riches and why why would I dedicate myself to the pursuit of finding the best Bible translation if what that ends up meaning is I'm only going to read this one and never check the others? No, yeah. constantly I'm getting benefit from all of the philosophies represented there, most of which are massively overlapping. I mean, the message is a little further out there, right? But even there were many places – I preached an expository sermon from the message on my YouTube channel once, and you could do it because – a lot of it still is translation. It hasn't actually strayed over into paraphrase, which I still find useful. Uh, I could go on and on and on on that topic. <laughs> I just wanted to have an opportunity to say thank you and thank you for thank your you. uh, your follow-up comments there. Again, thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Uh, we I would love to have you again when your next big tome comes out. What are, what are you working on now? Let's close with that. Uh, if you could see my computer screen right here, I am open to Hebrews 13. I am just finishing up the commentary in Hebrews. It'll be published in the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series. So, Excellent. And that'll be the next book. What a privilege to serve the Lord by digging deep into the Bible for year after I'm year. So thank- I'm so thankful that I get to do what I do. Yeah. Praise God. This book I'm holding by Dr. Moo represents decades of hard work and humble work. It's evident to me on every page that Dr. Moo, though of course subject to the old man of the old realm at times as we all are, has really given himself in love to his neighbors, his readers, by undertaking the Herculean labors required to produce this book. And I want to follow up on a gentle negative comment he made in our interview. There are some books out there that view Paul through such an overtly implausible and faithless lens that they can be safely ignored. There are also books I've picked up that, while not guilty of this particular sin, are guilty of taking 400 pages to say next to nothing. I feel like I'm reading the reflections of Captain Obvious. I am myself all the time looking out for books that give me something that I didn't have before, that teach me something I didn't know before, that inspire love for Christ and trust in his word, raising my affections to new heights. I got these things in Doug Moo's Theology of Paul and His Letters. 
I've been over this ground, Paul's letters, a thousand times, a million times, and yet Dr. Moo is still giving me something new and helpful, finding something in the texts that I didn't quite see before, not in that light, not with that clarity, not with those connections to other texts. Get this book. It can be read through from beginning to end, sure. I'm confident of this because of the amount of reading that I have done in it and the careful outline I saw in it, but it can also be used as a reference. And if you do that, if you use this book to look up Pauline themes or to get an expert overview of the theology of a given Pauline letter as you study it or teach it or both, I'd recommend getting this book in Logos Bible software. I find that for books I reference often, I want digital access. I just don't get around to flipping the pages of big tomes. I do, however, dart in through Logos, read some paragraphs or pages, and dart back out all the time. I do this repeatedly. My sincere recommendation is that you get this book inside Logos. I, Mark Ward, editor of Bible Study Magazine and host of its eponymous podcast, which you have just listened to, am speaking to you from inside the offices of Faithlight, makers of Logos. So I confess to being biased toward Logos Bible software. But I insist I was biased long before I ever came to work here. Logos is a tool I have relied on heavily for 15 plus years. Get a special foundational Logos package with great Bible study resources at logos.com slash Bible study or get a subscription to Bible Study Magazine at biblestudymagazine.com slash subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast.